Thanks for listening to the First Take podcast. I'm Simon King, an editor for First Word Pharma Plus. On this week's episode, I discuss some of the week's key news stories with my colleague Michael Flanagan, including the decision by US authorities to pause the rollout of Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine. So there's been um, a lot of news flow this week about um, the COVID-19 vaccines. Um, The biggest news story was undoubtedly um, the announcement from uh, the FDA and the uh, CDC this week to recommend pausing the use of Johnson & Johnson's um, one-shot COVID-19 vaccine, um, which has only just relatively recently been um, been rolled out in the US. Um, it's been paused um, after it was associated with six cases of um, a rare uh, blood clotting event, um, which is obviously shares similarities with the, uh, the, the the side effects that have been um, that have been seen with AstraZeneca's vaccine in Europe. Um, Michael, what's your kind of you know take on? on the decision to um, obviously initially pause the use of this vaccine. And actually, I guess what I should reiterate as well is that there was a meeting yesterday where they've decided to kind of extend that pause, I think, for another week or so. Yeah, I think the first thing that struck me was the the timing was certainly interesting for somebody who had just received the vaccine on Saturday. So that was that was a nice bit of news to wake up to this week, Uh, you know, the these rare clotting events are just they're so rare that it's i don't know it struck me as as interesting that they're going and they're putting a lot of news out there you know like headlines and making headlines by by the pause and all this stuff um you know it's there's good and bad to it Uh, obviously any clot and any serious adverse event is important and needs to be you know, thoroughly investigated and understood, and obviously you'd want to avoid it. But at the same time, you got to worry about the messaging that comes with that, especially here in the U.S., where the um, there's a lot of reticence to to get the vaccines to begin with. Um, and these these are very very rare events, and perhaps that that message is going to get out, and it's going to perhaps um, overwhelm the 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 you know preponderance of evidence that is out there that these vaccines work and work very well and are very safe. So it's interesting. I think the the big picture is, you know, there's there's these similar events that have now come up with AstraZeneca and J&J, um, the more traditional type vaccines, whereas, whereas the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and uh, slash BioNTech and Moderna may, may avoid them, uh, perhaps. So, you know, I guess... Um, Maybe a little good news for for the mRNA, not that they really need it at this point, but uh, I guess those are my sort of top level thoughts. Yeah, I mean, it it definitely does kind of indicate that there is, um, you know, there is a difference between the, the the two approaches that have been used to develop to, to develop these vaccines. I mean, on that point, um, Moderna sort of held a, a, an R and D vaccines. Um, presentation you know investor event this week where 
um, you know, they reiterated that, that their product, their vaccine is not associated with these side effects. Um, they reiterated about its sustained protection at six months, which is obviously the latest data they've got. They also had some really interesting slides on how they see the pandemic evolving, um, you know, the potential need for, for booster shots against kind of variants over the next few years. The suggestion that thereafter, maybe from sort of uh, 2023, 2024, you know, the severity of COVID-19 might then decline as it becomes kind of endemic. Um, there was also kind of some interesting reports coming out of the EU um, where it looks like the, the European Union um, may well move next year exclusively to the to the messenger RNA vaccines as well. So kind of lots of lots of news on the on the COVID-19 uh, vaccine front this week. I, I think to reiterate the point you made, Michael, as well, obviously, we've seen a very, very similar situation in Europe in recent weeks with the AstraZeneca vaccine and its uh, and its safety profile. Um, uh, you know, similar but different. You know, we've obviously had the kind of the, the political issues around access to the vaccine. I think it is fair to say that these are incredibly, um, you know, rare events. Um, I still think the best kind of risk benefit assessment I've seen is probably um, the one that was provided by um, the UK authorities a couple of weeks back, where they basically broke down the risk benefit of, of the AstraZeneca vaccine versus um you know, hospitalization risk, you know, or death risk from, from COVID-19 by age group. But obviously there are, there is no, you know, this is a complex kind of situation. And I, I, it's obviously one that's going to kind of keep developing, I guess. Um, moving away from, from COVID-19 vaccines, um, there was some data announced this week um, phase two data for a drug that's being developed by Sage Therapeutics. Um, it's being developed for essential tremor. Um, I mean, this would have this would have uh, attracted a lot of interest anyway, because Sage is a is a company that um, a lot of investors have been uh, focused on in recent years because they they kind of made um, some significant strides in the CNS space. But obviously, there's been kind of even more focus because last year Biogen signed a pretty hefty um you know collaboration with them in terms of uh, dollar value to to develop co-develop a couple of depression drugs and this essential essential tremor drug um what did you kind of make of the results you know they looked pretty good initially but i think there's a bit of an issue with side effects isn't there yeah i think that's what it basically comes down to you know they so this is a Another one of Sage's, you know, GABA receptor modulators, which is their whole sort of kit and caboodle. Um, this one is for essential tremor. I talked to Sage's CEO and, you know, he explained that this is this agent was best for this type of um, indication because it, you know, was best for oral chronic use. But, um, you know, even with that being sort of the better, the best of the bunch, it definitely has a problematic safety profile um, or tolerability profile. And so with the, they did show the um, statistically significant improvement on central tremor. So obviously that's good. It's like, just like the baseline is they sort of showed pr proof of principle, proof of concept. Um, this thing seems to work, but with that efficacy comes 
some 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 problems. Um, so the, their take on this was that they were expecting these safety issues, and this is a you know an initial phase two a study. So they know that they're going to have to optimize the profile. They're going to you know work on the dosing. They're going to try and figure out if um, there's a different schedule that may may help things. It's it's just the start for them. Whereas it sounds like investors or the street was they were they were looking for something a little more sort of ready to move forward with. Um, so that I think that that's where the difference of opinion was. Biogen and Sage are are saying, listen, listen, this works. The the mechanism seems to do what we think it's supposed to do, and now we'll we'll turn it into a drug. Whereas investors were like, well, we were hoping it was going to be a drug, you know, already. So, you know. It's drug development 101, really. That's what it sounds like. Okay. And we'll keep an eye out because I believe that there will be um, some, um, I guess, even higher profile data for um, the depression drug that's being developed by by Sage and Biogen later this year. So that will be something to watch. Um, I guess that, you know, if, if the depression data uh, is positive, that's really what's going to determine, it, it seems to me, whether this... Uh, investment on on Biogen's part has has been worthwhile. Um, <clears throat> I just wanted to flag um, the, the latest um, physician views survey that we um, we ran and we we wrote up this week. Um, a, a couple of couple of weeks ago, um, I ran a different uh, poll to U.S. dermatologists, just asking um, about their kind of. Um, enthusiasm for potentially using um, oral JAK inhibitors to treat atopic dermatitis. Um, as a bit of kind of background, there's a handful of these um, products that are, um, have been developed, uh, you know, have been studied in atopic dermatitis, have, have shown pretty impressive um, efficacy, um, which is sort of, you know, on par with um, Dupixent, which is the, the current standard of care for, for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis and arguably actually the jack inhibitors you know you you could argue that they're sort of actually slightly more efficacious um but obviously there is this um there's this kind of safety um cloud that hangs over the jack inhibitors and that initial survey that we ran um i think it was last month it was it was pretty positive you know i, I think there is definite scope um i think the idea of a of an oral alternative is is appealing to dermatologists. Obviously, since then we've had this um, ongoing situation where the US FDA has now um, has has uh, port, uh, not paused has delayed uh, making a an approval decision on three of these JAK inhibitors um, for atopic dermatitis, and it all seems to be sort of stemming from. Um, this ongoing um, sort of risk benefit uh, review of the class as a whole that the FDA is um, partaking in as a result of some some new uh, long-term safety data that was uh, released for Pfizer's Zelgents um, right at the beginning of the year. So we just wanted to run another quick poll um, just to sort of see how, you know, how this could resonate with um with dermatologists and obviously you know there's still a huge amount of uncertainty here the the, the real key thing is is 
you know what what the FDA sort of says um, in terms of in terms of labeling once it's conducted its review, whether it just changes the labeling for Zelgents, whether it then kind of uses this sort of boilerplate um, label change for all of the jack inhibitors. And and I know you know people who listen to this podcast regularly, we've spoken about this in the past. Um, but I just thought it was worth pointing out, and I think you know if if you can go and have a look at the go and have a look at the write up because we sort of break down the 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 answers to the questions. But I think it you know the results that we had definitely suggest that whilst there is enthusiasm for this drug class, um, I, I think if 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 there are class wide um, labelling changes made or these drugs are approved for atopic dermatitis with more severe warnings. Um, I think there could well be a, a kind of a, a moderate to significant impact on how uh, how the how this drug class is used for atopic dermatitis. So that would obviously, if if that does happen and it does kind of reduce the impact, that would obviously be um, quite significant uh, for Sanofi and Regeneron, who are um, responsible for marketing um, Depixent, which, as I as I said, is the, is the current standard uh, of care for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. Um, Michael, moving on to the um, American Association of Cancer Research meeting, which happened um, last weekend, um, there was some pretty um, interesting uh, new data for uh, Bristol Myers Squibb's um, Obdivo. Uh, in the neoadjuvant setting for non-small cell lung cancer. And I believe you're um, shortly going to be talking to a, a key opinion leader to, to sort of delve into these results a bit more. Yeah, you know, it's it's another one of these um, clinical readouts that will probably be coming uh, fast and furious here with, you know, the checkpoint inhibitors moving into the the really early stage space before and, and right after surgery. So the Bristol-Myers Squibb reported last uh, October that Opdivo, when added uh, to the neoadjuvant treatment right before surgery, significantly um, improved pathological complete response, which is, you know, it's this endpoint that again, we've, we've talked about before, it's a surrogate. It's not, you know, the end-all be-all survival endpoint that that we really want to see or the doctors will want to see. But unlike when Keytruda improved the pathological complete response in triple negative breast cancer recently, but got rejected because the improvement, you know, the overall improvement on pathological complete response was very modest. This showed, I think it was a 24%. Um, pathological complete response versus 2% for placebo. So this is this is a, a much more robust signal. And, you know, whether that means that FDA will accept it and sort of grant it accelerated approval, I think that's sort of a big question. We'll see. It's going to be an interesting, perhaps, test of where, where FDA's head is at on approving these drugs based on a, a surrogate marker. That should be interesting. But uh, it's clearly good news for you know, checkpoint inhibitors for patients, probably especially for Bristol-Myers Squibb, which has been behind Merck uh, in, the, in the lung cancer setting specifically. And this could, could really give them a leg up uh, on Keytruda and the other P53 
PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors, if they can get first to market. I'm, I'm going to be speaking with a, a physician, an oncologist uh, this week and get his opinion on, you know, on the data and how important this is. But uh, I suspect it might be a real, a real um, boon for Bristol-Myers Squibb, uh, assuming no, you know, no question marks emerge and um, especially if FDA gives them the go ahead. I'm sure this would be a real big win for them. Yeah, I mean, I think just looking back to some of the some of the prior conversations that that that, that other um, you know other researchers within First Word of you know their their interviews with key opinion leaders. I mean, it seems like one of the real concerns in the in the kind of the neoadjuvant um, lung cancer setting is, is is the potential for you know toxicity for you know with these agents to sort of potentially delay surgery. I guess at that point, you know, surgery is such a kind of a, a critical part of, of the treatment process. But one of the things that was noted um, when these data for Obdivo were presented last week was that, you know, they didn't believe that the safety profile was, you know, they described it as tolerable and, and it didn't impede the feasibility of, of, of surgery, you know, having the, the tumour resected. So I guess that's something that the physician you speak to will, will, will probably provide some more colour on, but it, it certainly does look um certainly looks positive and, and 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 dare i say it you know and more approvable than than that that some of the other um, data sets that that we've had in the a stage stuff um the last thing i i kind of wanted to touch on um on today's podcast was um a combination actually of, of a few news stories um we saw yesterday that um, GlaxoSmithKline um, has said it's going to um, end two phase two studies um, evaluating a, a drug called Feladilimab, which is an ICOS receptor agonist. Um, it's being studied in combination with Merkinko's Keytruda as a first line therapy for metastatic head and neck, neck cancer. Um, these were phase two studies. Um, you know, looking back, uh, the drug. Um, kind of showed some promising um data but from a you know from a pretty small phase one study in all honesty so there was obviously a, a i don't know if gamble is too strong a word but there was obviously um you know there was a bit of a gamble to push this in, in into phase two stroke three studies that have obviously now uh they've ended um they don't you know the drug doesn't appear to be working um just just looks like it's a bit of a, a you know a, a, another issue that's really kind of removing any momentum um for GlaxoSmithKline you know it, it's uh, seen a couple of other setbacks already this year um it was developing a, another cancer drug with Merck KGAA in non-small cell lung cancer and biliary tract cancer and both those studies have failed as well and um you know, interesting to, to to see in the Financial Times in the UK today that there's an activist hedge fund um, which is building up a, a pretty sizable, um, you know, kind of presence uh, in the company. And, and there seems to be a suggestion that maybe shareholders are, are becoming a little bit disillusioned with where, um, you know, with where GlaxoSmithKline is going. Um, and 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 the direction that that that, that Emma Walmsley, the CEO, is kind of taking them. I mean, uh, I I don't know, Michael, if you kind of you know know much about these ICOS receptor agonists. I think there was another drug. Um, I think it was a, by a company called Jounce, the Jounce Therapeutics, that failed last year. You know, it 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 
it just feels like there's a you know there's now a bit of form for this sort of mechanism to maybe not be as um, compelling as we thought it might be right and one of one of um you know it's not alone in being you know the the next sort of big target <laughs> that people are excited about that that would work in this type of a setting um that looks like it may just sort of not you know work after all the excitement so disappointing obviously but uh you know not not entirely uh surprising especially given the the news of the other icos uh, program sort of going down in a in a in a ball of flames if you will thanks for listening to this edition of the first take podcast for daily pharmaceutical news analysis insights and views please visit firstwordpharma.com